Hey, everybody. Sherry here. Welcome to the Writing Glitch podcast. I am here with Stephen Quinlan. He is a licensed, independent clinical social worker. Did I get that in the right order? <laughs> yes. He specializes in anxiety and animal-assisted therapies. He and his beautiful lab, Hazel, often head out to the hospitals and other locations to help with these kids who have anxiety. Plus, I bet you there's a couple adults that he interfaces with as well. He owns the Anxious Child podcast. And welcome to the podcast, Stephen. It is great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This month, we are just doing this blast of amazing experts that are talking about anxiety and emotion and how to control the outbursts in the kids. So welcome to this Emotional Kids Summit, Stephen. Tell us a little bit about who you are. I mentioned what you are, but who are you? How did the podcast get started? And tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. The the licensed independent clinical social worker, the independent part of that is actually unique to New Hampshire, where my practice is right now. When I originally started in New York, it's just the LCSW without the, I don't know if that's like a live free or die thing that like New Hampshire throws in there that we're that independent that also our clinical social workers are independent, but that's what that, that's what that is. But yeah, I've been a therapist for a little over 20 years. I'm originally from Colorado. I went to graduate school in New York City, where I started the early part of my career there, working with kids and families. I originally worked in the housing projects of East Harlem. So lots of difficult situations there and eventually moved up here in 2005 and Worked in a couple of different clinic settings and then just under 10 years ago started my own practice. And a couple of years ago, as you mentioned, started the Anxious Child podcast. Also wrote a book at that time and gave me some stuff to do over COVID, which is where a lot of that came from. But also really wanting to try and get the word out on how to help these kids, specifically those who struggle with anxiety. So that's been a specialty area of mine for probably also about the last 10 years. That's right. You were the one, as I was doing my interviews ahead of time, you were the one that wrote that book on selective mutism. Am I correct? That is correct. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what selective mutism is. Sure. So selective mutism is a anxiety-based communication disorder. So what that looks like is you have kids who are very hesitant or completely mute to when they're out in public. So they either won't respond to you at all, or they might give you a shake of their head, yes or no. Occasionally, there is a spectrum of functioning along there and some overlap into social anxiety. But some sometimes you might get a, a whisper out of them, but they, they're all presenting with that being either completely mute or really reserved when they're out in public, but then at home are completely verbal and interactive. And so it does, it stems from, from anxiety. So a lot of the, the strategies that we talk about in, 
in that book are particular for kids who have selective mutism, but they also are applicable to kids or even adults who have anxiety as well. You're making me think about about 32 years ago when I got married, when they got to that that two-word sentence that said the I do part, my pastor looked at my husband and said, did she say it (laughs) or not? And I was so terrified to be up in front of all those people that I mouthed the words, but nothing came out. <laughs> and that, but I really struggled with speaking out, answering questions in school and things like that. So you're making me think of, about my childhood as you talk about that. So thank mm-hmm. you for clarifying. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's, I hope your husband doesn't hold that against you too much that like you never actually said the words, but clearly after 32 <laughs> years, something's going right. <laughs> I did say it, but it just was so soft that even the pastor had trouble hearing it. But yeah, yeah. it is more common than you might think. The latest research on selective mutism, which is not very recent, it's actually from around 2000, puts the number at one in 144, which, yeah, it sounds, some people think that sounds like not very much, but when we look at the stats for autism, which have gone from one in 88 to now, I think are one in 44, that gives you an idea of actually how common a struggle it is. And as I mentioned, there's that there can be that overlap into just like social anxiety for sure. And social anxiety is the the third most diagnosed psychological disorder behind depression and alcoholism. It's quite prevalent. Keeps me busy. Yeah, I'm sure. I didn't realize it was that prevalent and I didn't make the connection to general anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder when we were first talking, I'm blown away. I always associated it with a severe autistic kid. The not speaking part? Yeah. Yeah. And there is also sometimes some confusion around what I kind of frame as traumatic mutism. So that is where somebody has been through a really difficult trauma and they have trouble just speaking in general. The difference being that it comes from that place of rooted in trauma as opposed to anxiety. But these are the kids who... You're healing me as you speak. (laughs) (laughs) Just doing my job. (laughs) No, I had a traumatic experience when I was 10. My uncle passed away in an explosion and in the aftermath. I've been struggling with writing that information down and how it impacted me. And I know that after that, I didn't speak as, as fluently as I did prior. Yeah, and also quite common. Obviously, trauma is something that pretty much everybody experiences in some way or another. It doesn't have to be that you went through a, a very difficult event like you did. There can also be just, it's a perceived assault to yourself. So that can be something like made fun of me when I was in fifth grade. And I remember that feeling and that felt so horrible. And I carry that with me. Yeah. That's something we all kind of experience in one way or another. Yeah. Um, I never expected this interview to go that direction, but okay then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what's interesting with the the anxiety kids, coming back around to that, because I know a lot of what you're talking about is how to help help kids be regulated and obviously in, in classroom settings and that kind of thing. These are the kids who are 
a lot of times passed over because they're not the ADHD kid bouncing off the wall. And it's like very obvious that they're having difficulty in the classroom. These are the ones who are sitting in the back of the class and appearing to be very well behaved and not bothering anybody. (laughs) You're raising your hand. (laughs) That was you. But it's, it's not often noticed, particularly when you're talking about something like selective mutism. I've heard this many times. They went all the way through kindergarten and we just realized we had our like spring conference with the teacher and the teacher was like, I don't know that I've ever actually heard them say any words now that we're talking about it. And they appear to be so well behaved, but of course they're actually terrified. Sometimes it's not identified as early as it could be. So what we're trying to focus on here in this conversation is those kids that are in your classroom that are so quiet that you could hear the pin drop when you're around them. And Mm -hmm. that was me in my entire school life. And of course, the experience I just shared about my wedding day was like this culmination. And here I am, a podcast host and speaking out on behalf of these kids and really trying to find that trigger that created that for myself and how it has also filtered down and transitioned and transferred onto my kids who both have anxiety as well. Both of my kids were also the ones that they weren't the ADHD kids that were bouncing off the wall. They were the inattentive ADHD kids that had the anxiety as well. And so trying to manage those connections, I'm blown away. Just saying, <laughs> blown away. Let's, but, and it's you're not. It's not unusual in that all those things you're saying either. In terms of, we know that there's a genetic component with this, with anxiety in particular, and there is also potentially a component of modeling of anxious behavior for kids. So that's why it's so important to work through our own things so that we're not passing along that way of dealing with the world for our kids because kids are copycats. It's it's monkey see, monkey do for better or for worse. And the fact that, as you said, here you are now, you're speaking out on this stuff, you're a podcast host, you're literally speaking out to the world. What a difference that is for you and that you've been able to work through these things to this point where you're doing this kind of work. That's huge. And it's something you can, as I said, model for the kids, but also directly talk to them. This is something I encourage parents to do a lot. If you have anxiety, tell your kids, here's how I've dealt with it. These are some things that uh, work for me. These are some things that maybe make it worse. So you have that chance to pass that along to them. Those are golden nuggets, people. Pass it along. Talk about it. Don't hold it in. How do we create the prompt or that discussion in the classroom? Do you have any suggestions for that? That's an interesting question because normally I would tell parents to do that when so bedtime is the perfect time to to engage in some of these conversations because as as an OT in terms of regulation, that 
uh, kids are in that place where hopefully they've gone through their bedtime routine and they've regulated and they're getting ready to go to sleep. And so they're not, the arousal isn't there and they don't want to go to sleep. Like kids will avoid (laughs) going to sleep like the plague. So they'll do anything or talk about anything with you at that point. So that's the time that I suggest for parents. In terms of with the teachers, it's a little bit trickier because I think you never want to feel like you're singling the child out, um, which is, of course, one of the biggest fears when you're anxious anyway, is having that limelight put on you. That's the last thing that you want. So I think if I'm trying to imagine if I were a teacher and I were trying to uh, get this stuff across to the child or to the parents, I think it would probably be more in like a parent-teacher conference kind of situation where you would talk directly to the parents about that and then encouraging the child while you're there with them in the classroom to do these brave activities, right? So things that are pushing the boundaries of the anxiety. So if Jimmy has a fear of bees and he doesn't want to go out and eat his snack outside because he's worried all the bees will come over, then you can do some things like read to him a book about bees or watch a video about bees, all these things that start to slowly expose them to the thing that they're anxious about in the first place is a great place to start. And it sounds like a great idea for the entire classroom as well, having a theme week on bees. Yeah, absolutely. You could certainly do something like that, which that's a great suggestion because that takes away that singling out. As I was talking about earlier, this is something that we're all learning about. And with that example, even lots of kids are afraid of bees, right? So you're also helping to generalize, normalize that fear for, let's say, Jimmy himself, right? And then he discovers that, oh, Susie also feels the same way. So yeah, that would be great. When I was at a contract in one of the school buildings, we had a kiddo who was totally afraid of the fire drill. And of course, that is something that has to happen all the time. And what they did for him was talk to him in the morning before the fire drill and let him know about it and was working through. Now, I was there as a substitute teacher at that particular time with that student. And we had to have frequent conversations, he and I, even though I was a substitute in the classroom, didn't know him well. I was put in this position with the fire drill coming that day. It was a little stressful, not just on him, but on me as well, because I didn't know exactly how, because I didn't have a history with him. Having a history with the students is also very helpful. Yeah, you have to know the kids, right? And it's different for each kid. And one of the questions I get frequently from parents when they're first coming in to see me for therapy, I'll meet with the parents first initially. And They'll say, so what, what is it you're going to do? It's a perfectly legitimate question. Right? What does this look like? How are we going to help so-and-so? And often my answer at that point is we have to figure out what is the therapy for this kid? Because I see part of my job as being coming up with essentially a new therapy for each kid that comes through because it's every, we're all human beings. We're all 
very much unique. And what works for one kid is not going to work for another. And same with the adults. Obviously, there are general guidelines like we're talking about with anxiety, which is part of why I think diagnosis is even helpful <laughs> in some ways if you're not an insurance company, because it gives you an idea of, okay, we're going in this kind of general direction. But other than that, you really have to try and tailor what your approach is going to be to who the kid is and spend some time getting to know them. Let's transition a little bit, talk a little bit about the animal-assisted therapy. What does that look like with these kids with anxiety and or even going into the hospital? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with, with Hazel. Sure. Hazel is, it's funny too, because we were talking about that I had the Black Lab, Layla, before Hazel. And even with the two dogs, it's been different. It's been like a different kind of therapy because they have different personalities. They're both wonderful dogs. Layla was much more mellow and would just provide this calming presence. And some of the kids would lay on her and read her books and that sort of thing. Hazel is much more active and athletic. She's still very sweet and calm, but loves to play ball and go for walks and all that kind of thing. But generally speaking, probably one of the bigger things is just that sense of instant connection. When people come in, you know how it is if you if you have a dog and you're walking down the street, like people will stop and talk to you and say, oh, how old is your dog? And, oh, we used to have it. And it's, it's this conversation where there wouldn't have been one there before. So that helps immediately. And I think even just around some of the anxiety of coming to therapy for the first time, that knowing that before they even enter the room that, oh, the, I can look at a picture of Hazel and see that she's going to be there and she looks really nice and I like dogs. And so hopefully it'll be, it'll be okay. Beyond that, it, it does, it again, does depend on the kid or on the person. Some people are very interested. Some people are not so interested. If they're not, she just goes and takes a nap. But if they are, we can do lots of things. As I mentioned, various kind of games, like she can play hide and go seek and that kind of stuff. Or I'm also really big on just getting out of the office sometimes. I do, I call it the walk and talk, which is you are there taking the dog for a walk or you go to the park or something. And as we're doing that, we're talking about what's going on at school or things that are bothering you. It's just easier than plunking a kid down on the couch and staring at them and expecting them to talk to you about things. With the selectively mute kids, I've done some things in the past as far as encouraging them to be verbal in the room. I would do things like have one of the dogs stay and then they throw the ball and the dog will only go unless you give them the verbal cue, which is a very easy okay. So even if you whisper that to the dog. Well-trained lab will do that. <laughs> yes, they will. They'll do anything for a treat. Really, it makes it easy. So even just that getting initial kind of whispers out and the kid, they just, the kids love it. They'll, they love seeing them run and get the ball. And there's, so there's motivation there for them. I had mentioned that we had labs growing up. My dad trained our labs for competitive water hunting thing. Oh, yeah. So we had some very well-trained labs when I was growing up. And then we got one that wasn't as well-trained. <laughs> <laughs> but she definitely was like the Pavlonian dog. Every time that the timer on the stove went off, she would bark. We ended up calling her <laughs> Dink Park. Time for dinner. 
<laughs> oh, what is such a, and you mentioned how different Layla and Hazel are. It, it's amazing how different all of the animals are. We're on our third cat in our marriage. We don't have dogs since I'm married. My husband can't have dogs. And so this one here, the latest one is the fun, the only one who ever stayed on my lap. So I can see, and I see that with the, my kids, that the cat on the lap definitely is calming and helps relieve some of their anxiety. Now, both of my kids are adults. And it's not like I'm looking at a young child and see, watching them calm, but I have seen that in the past. Do you ever engage with having a cat alongside the dog and with them? I don't know if you've ever been in somebody's home with Hazel or anything like that. No, but I do, I do see often what I think what you're describing, just that petting of the dog. If she comes over and somebody's talking about something, just that doing something with your hand and feeling that tactile sensation. I've seen that be very helpful. And I think that they have an intuitive sense, not to get too funky with this stuff, but they, I've seen some things over the years where people have been upset, crying or really struggling with something, and one of the dot will go over and just put their head on their lap. And it's, it's just, it's just a small thing in some ways, but it's so meaningful for people. And that it's a lot of times as therapists, we talk about these smaller kind of acts which have bigger meaning and it can be something like handing somebody a tissue and that that really is conveying a lot. So that's, they do that just themselves and just having that other presence there in the room, there's something that is, I think, just fundamentally therapeutic about it. This has been an amazing conversation. Is there anything that you'd like to add or share with the listeners as we get ready to depart for the day? Sure. I would encourage people to, if you have a kid or you're working with a kid who is struggling with anxiety, to try and seek out what are the things that we're avoiding in, in terms of working with the anxiety, because this is one of the major pitfalls that well-intentioned parents or educators or therapists even can make is to try and make accommodations for people who are struggling with anxiety. And we're really just serving to reinforce the anxiety itself. So that's probably the biggest thing that you can start with. We talk a lot about this on the podcast. There's certainly, you can delve into that more if you like. There's lots of resources around that. And certainly in the book, as I mentioned, there's activities for, that's a good portion of the book is just, we call them these brave activities that ideas that you can take the kid out into the community to try to do to help them, in the case of the book, be more verbal, but also, certainly, as I was saying earlier, it applies to just anxiety as a whole. Don't avoid it. Confront it head on. Even as a parent, as we were talking about earlier, talk about your own anxiety. The more it's out in the open, the less power it has. I had this thought, and I'm going to go here because I really think this might be something that would be beneficial to our teachers and maybe even the therapist. We have a lot of kids that are with maybe selective mutism, maybe more nonverbal. And one of the resources that they do to get people's attention or to let people know that they are not happy with a situation is biting. 
Mm-hmm. And we're even talking into elementary years. What ideas do you have to help not draw light to the biting, but yet minimize its experience? Yeah, yeah one good. of the things that I'm thinking about is if you pay attention to it, it's, they do it more. Where right, if you don't right. pay and, to it, that it yeah. hopefully will go away, but it's not always happening. Sure. Yeah. I think you have to walk the line there between, as you said, giving it too much attention, but also making it clear that's not acceptable. We don't bite people. And I think it can be usually just a a gentle but firm reminder that that's not acceptable. And there's, I hesitated on that because there's a lot that could be going on there. It could, there could be a sensory component that maybe is some kind of sensory seeking behavior or that underlying frustration. A lot of times these things are symptoms of just emotional underpinnings. So we need Mm -hmm. to look at that as well. Yeah. I bring it up and you had me thinking about it because I had a kiddo in one of my schools that would do that. And I was able to get him to not bite me, but it was close to the end of the school year and the special ed teacher and the para I, we were dressed down that day, like field day or something like that. And I'm like, really? He's been biting you that much? We needed, something has to happen because that's not a way to have to deal with your job. Yeah. (laughs) You shouldn't be bit when you go into work. I think we can all agree on that. No, no. And it's not the only time I've heard that of not talking about it and stuff and allowing it to happen has been one of the acceptables. And so I didn't know if there was anything. So hopefully there's something in your book to help teachers around that situation because it can be very disheartening to have that pain every day. Yeah, I won't say that. I don't think there's anything specifically about biting, but again, again, the general guidelines for dealing with anxiety are certainly there. And I also have, I've been doing a presentation around local schools, just specifically about anxiety because it is such a problem and I'm really you know, in the spirit of the podcast and the book and all those things, trying to get this information out there for folks because it can be so helpful. So I did a, there's about a 25 minute sort of shortened version of that presentation that I recorded and put on my website that people can go and download and share it with your friends or whoever. And hopefully it's helpful for you. That would be a really great resource for teachers, if they need some professional development, I am sure that that would be something to help them out. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How can people get a hold of you? Yeah, you can Google me. I'm not hard to find. The, the, there's my website. There's the podcast. There's the book. You can you can email me. I try to get back to as many people as I can. Even if I can't help you specifically, I'll try to point you in a good direction. And uh, yeah, hopefully I can be of help to folks. Perfect. And this is Stephen Quinlan, a licensed social worker out of, you said New Hampshire, correct? Correct, yeah. So if you're looking for that and the name of your podcast again, that's the anxious child podcast, the anxious child podcast, and it's available wherever podcasts are able to be listened to. Correct. Correct. All right. And his book is selected mutism. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Stephen. It has been a great therapeutic experience for me. (laughs) I'm glad.